I have absolutely no idea what we're doing here, or what I'm doing here, or what this place is about, but I am determined to enjoy myself. Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hello, and welcome to episode 20 of the Appendix N Book Club. This week, we are discussing A Merit's Burn, Witch Burn. I am Jeff, and with me is the skeptical and scientific Hoy. Hello. And we've also got our very special guest with us today, Stephen Newton. Hello, Stephen. Hello, guys. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. It's great having you here. So those of you who aren't familiar with Stephen Newton's work, he is the author of many things. Uh, He's written some adventures for Dungeon Crawl Classics, including The Stronghold of the Wood Giant Shaman, Haunting of Larvik Island, Attack of the Frogs, and probably most well-known for his uh, fantastic zero-level funnel, They Served Brandolin Red. And he's also just finished up a Kickstarter for his Mutant Crawl Classics adventure, Children of the Fallen Sun. Uh, Steven, is there anything that I've left out of that that you feel like needs to be included? I think you got all the big ones. I um, I was able to, I was fortunate enough to publish the um, a shorter adventure, Floating Oasis, The Ascended God, which is in the Bride of the Black Mance reprint. That is a badass title. <laughs> yeah. Um, thank you. Uh <laughs> And uh, I've got some other stuff coming out this year. Um, one is kind of public. It's a DCC Western, but it's rules agnostic. So I've done playtesting on it on both the Black Powder Black Magic rules as well as the um, David Beatty Stark Trails rules. So I'm really excited about that one coming out too. That was a fun one. Yeah, that's right. And actually, I was I ran one of those playtests, and Hoy was a player in that yep. playtest as well. Played uh, the Luchador in the last last year's last summer. It was a tremendous amount of fun. Yeah, that was a great adventure. Yeah. The Last Will and Testament of Obadiah Felkner. That's right. That's right. I uh, I got some good feedback from you, um, uh, Mr. Hobbs, as well. He he did some feedback as well. It was really fun. Very cool. I'm glad we could help out with that. And uh, so, Stephen, tell us a little bit about your introduction to Dungeons and Dragons and to the Appendix N. So, my introduction to Dungeons and Dragons and DCC came uh, in the Holmes Blue set. Uh, I guess I would have been around 78, 79. And I played that for several years before going to uh, Advanced D&D, which I played quite a bit. Um, and then I took a big break. I, I bought all the editions, but I didn't play them too much. Uh, and then I decided I wanted to start publishing. So I, uh, at that point, fourth edition was out. And so I published Haunting of Larvik Island for fourth edition, which was a real eye opener in terms of like how that game was set up. Um, and I had started working on the sequel to that when I was re- when I read about the DCC beta rules. So I immediately switched over to DCC and I haven't looked back. I, I just love that system. It's mm-hmm. got all the cleanliness of a new, you know, like rules cleanup when I mean cleanliness, uh, the rules cleanup of a, of a modern system, but has the old school feel. So yeah. I've been in that ever since. Yeah. It's definitely a best of both world situation. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so Steven, uh, you and I probably are sort of contemporaries in the game and, um, were you reading a lot of Appendix and fiction with, uh, with or without your knowledge of what it was at the time when you were playing the games? I started reading Appendix N basically when the Deities and Demigods book came out. So when that came out is when I learned about Melnabonian and uh, Nawan mythos in that book. And so I read all the Elric books, read all the Fafard and the Grey Mauser books. Um, I'd read The Hobbit just because my dad had read it, but uh, much of the other Appendix N um, I had not read. I'd read some Poe, obviously. I don't know if Poe's actually in Appendix N or not. Not officially. Yeah, yeah. And then I uh, I didn't start reading Cthulhu, actually, um, until a few years ago. Really? Yeah, so that was yeah. actually, I was a late bloomer as it came to that. And um, I read In the Mountains of Madness, and that's just a fantastic title. Right, right. <laughs> I mean, I would have expected you, uh, maybe through your sort of strong grasp of horror, to have been a, a you know an early Lovecraft bloomer rather than a late Lovecraft bloomer in a way. I know it's it, it is kind of odd. I mean, I did. I was a voracious reader as a kid, but it was it was all Stephen King, and um, uh, and then when Clive Barker came around, I, I read all of his stuff, and I read a lot of sci-fi. So. I read a lot of Larry Niven, who I believe is in Appendix N, but it was all the sci-fi stuff. It was all the Niven Purnell 
uh, books, sci-fi books mm-hmm. like Footfall and Lucifer's Hammer and that kind of stuff. And Ringworld. And- well, actually, I didn't read the Ringworld series, so that was really? it, okay. yeah. So it was it was all their sci-fi ones, not the okay. not the fantasy ones. Okay. And today we're discussing A Merit's Burn Witch Burn. I this is the first A Merit that I've read. Have either of you read any A Merit pr- prior to this? I'd read the short stories, okay. and I was aware of Ship of Ishtar and some of the other ones, but I still haven't read Ship of Ishtar. But I've read uh, all the short stories by this point. But this is the first novel of his I've read. Okay. And how about you, Stephen? No, this is my first one. I um, It was actually after listening to Sanctum Secorum that I was looking for uh, the other book in the series when I found Burn Witch Burn at Powell Bookstore in Portland, which is a fabulous bookstore, by the way. And that's actually how you ended up becoming the guest on this episode is uh, I believe you posted the picture to Instagram of your Appendix N finds. And it was just as I was uh, trying to think about who a guest might be for this episode. And you had posted the picture of Burn Witch Burn as a part of your finds. And I was like, ooh, Stephen Newton, maybe he wants to be our guest. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, that was a, a serendipity <laughs> happening right there. The fates brought us together. Exactly. So you and I have a similar version, although yours is uh, kind of bigger and fancier, which you can tell us about in a moment. But I've got the 1951 paperback in my hands right here. And it is uh, it's got an uncredited it has uncredited art on it. It's got kind of a witch with like a beautiful woman mask and she's taking it off. And there's like a man skulking in the back through the flames with the dagger. Maybe the man's actually, Oh, that's a doll, isn't it? Oh yeah. It could be the doll and the man's, uh, a man's asleep and he's twisted into his night clothes and in, in terror. Yeah. Yeah. And you've got uh, a similar thing, but yours is just a bigger, older copy. Isn't that correct? I believe so. Yeah. So I've got the, according to the, the notes here, I've got the 1942 Avon edition, and it's actually got a hand-scrawled note in here. It was owned by Mrs. Gordon C. Anderson at one point in time. And mm. it, my, my, my cover page does say it says drawings by W.M. Period Frost. So I guess that's William Frost. Mm. So, so maybe oh, artist great. On the, yeah, actually, now that I'm looking at the cover after reading it, the cover makes more sense now, now that we say that that's a doll and the, uh, that there's a witch with a, a young woman's face being pulled after yeah. it yeah. Mm-hmm. we'll get into all and what's that interesting is this i think the same person because the artwork seems similar did the illustrations on the inside and although there aren't too many the few that are in there are very cool nice i'm gonna have to dig that one up i actually went with a uh, public domain copy uh, my copy is from feedbooks.com um, but you can also find all the merit stuff on uh, freeread.com.au i believe um so that's a good uh, repository of um uh, public domain stuff. A lot of stuff in Aust- uh, goes into the domain earlier in Australia than it does in the United States. So mm. it's always a good place to look for Appendix uh. N and pulp ear- pulp era fiction. And what's funny about your copy that you're reading, I'm looking right now, the, the cover of it is actually the film poster for the movie Burn Witch Burn. But what's funny about that is the movie Burn Witch Burn is actually not based on this novel. It is instead based on the Fritz Leiber story, The Conjure Wife, and there, but there is a film adaptation of Burn Witch Burn, which is called The Devil Doll. And that was directed by James Whale, who's known for like The Old Dark House and Frankenstein mm-hmm. and movies like that. Bride of Frankenstein. Is, is exactly. The wrong cover, but Fritz Leiber and A. Merritt. It's all Appendix N. Close enough, right? Exactly. And for those who have read this book and might be interested in a film adaptation, and if you, if you want to watch The Devil Doll, I'll just tell you I, I did. And it has... Even though it is based on this, it is like literally nothing about this. It's about like a, an evil an evil magician and his ventriloquist doll. But it claims to be based on this novel. So I'm, I'm not quite sure what the connection is other than that there's evil dolls mm-hmm. and magic. But anyways, before we go into the library and discuss uh, what we think about this, uh, about this book and how it relates to gaming, let's quickly discuss our Hygaxian word of the day. Phosphorescence. Phosphorescence. Phosphorescence is uh, found on page 19 of our text, and it says what, – what they're doing is they're looking at some blood samples under a microscope. And it says, only a simple white corpuscle, but within it was the spark of phosphorescence, shining out like a tiny lamp. And the reason I chose phosphorescence as our word of the day is although it's not an incredibly obscure word, it is a word that I have found is used quite a bit in fantasy role-playing, especially when you're uh, doing deep, deep dungeon delves right. and you've it's got your... the lichen and the molds and the mosses and stuff like that. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, but Stephen, I believe you also have a, um, a word for us. That's right. Um, the word that I, I found that, I, uh, that inspired me was unguent 
which is a, according to uh, my online dictionary here, a soft, greasy, or viscous substance used as an ointment or for lubrication. And the unguent uh, becomes important throughout the story as uh, it's part of the process for creating the dolls. And uh, I like this word so much that in the, the new adventure I'm writing, it actually makes an appearance. So I'm, I'm applying what I learned. That's fantastic. And although this is definitely not a competition, if it were, you would definitely have won the Hygaxian word of the day because that is a much better word. <laughs> and somehow when I read it, it just it, it didn't it didn't even occur to me to underline that one. He'll, so he'll good find. It. It'll be Newtonian. It won't even be Hygaxian. It'll be High Newtonian. <laughs> That's right. When you guys, high, high Newtonian. High Tonian. When you guys see it in the new adventure, you can go, ah, burn witch burn. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Another another great example of High Tonian uh, vocabulary. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's head on over to the library and discuss what we thought about this book. Um, I quite enjoy this one. It's uh, a little bit more straightforward in terms of the prose than um, Merritt is usually giving credit for. He's usually giving credit for having very lush, ornate descriptions, and this is very sort of procedural, and it starts sort of very scientific, very rational, and almost a little bit of film noir element because there's a, a gang boss, Ricori who brings in to the doctor, who our doctor narrator. Dr. Lowell. He's one of his henchmen who has mysteriously succumbed to some sort of coma. Mm. Um, so it starts off, you're thinking almost like um, like the scenes in The Godfather when, when uh, Vita Corleone is brought to the hospital. It has that feeling initially. Um, but then it gets weirder and weirder as it goes along. So I, I like this quite a bit. Yeah, one thing I really enjoyed about reading this is it, it felt very episodic. And, I'm, and if I look back, I'm pretty sure each chapter was kind of released as its own uh, segment in Argosy Magazine. Is that correct? Um, I'm one, uh, not 100% sure, but I believe so. I mean, he was generally always in the pulps before he was never a straight novelist. So mm -hmm. uh, that, seems, that seems to make sense to me. And I felt like that really came across in the way each chapter really kind of felt like its own episode and there being uh, 18 chapters in here, it kind of felt like I just like watched an ep like a, like a season of, of a TV show about burn, which burn and each, each pair, each uh, chapter rather definitely has like its own little arc and ends with its own little kind of cliffhanger uh, kind of episode ender, which I thought was kind of a fun way to read a novel. Uh, Steven, what did you think about burn, which burn? So I really liked it. Um, you know, uh, I want, I want to, echo what Hoy felt. It, it felt very contemporary, despite it being written in the 30s. Um, it, it, it had an old school horror about it in terms of uh, the cast. And, you know, it, it, uh, you've got the, the mob boss, you've got the doctor who's a straight man. Um, you've got uh, his assistant, which is they have a very X-Files. I mean, in, a whole, in addition to the whole book feeling like an X-Files or a Twilight Zone or a Night Gallery, the way they played off each other worked really well and then it mm -hmm. had all the the magical elements and the and the the mysterious elements about the witch and whatnot and one of the things i really liked about it despite it having kind of a standard you know exposition and characters and then they discover and then the climax at the end is that there are several aspects of the horror or the mystery that aren't explained they put it out there and and it it just it continues to build on the mysterious feeling of this of like yeah there's weird things happening and we don't have a, a rational explanation of why why they needed the cord or what these elves in the mirror did so i really like that aspect of the book right or exactly how old the protagonist madame madame mandalip is and there's a hanging uh um, antagonist antagonist and um there's a hanging uh sort of dangling plot line about she had learned it from one other apparently possibly a lover or other sorcerer back and we don't know how far how far back in the past that was so that definitely gives a sense of a, an older and broader world than we can see in front of our very eyes sure and for those who are listening who aren't familiar with burn witch burn the the story in a nutshell is basically that there is a very skeptical doctor who meets this gang boss who brings in his buddy who's suffering from some kind of strange malady the person dies uh, they end up determining that it's actually the fault of this witch who is um, basically creating these evil dolls which serve her. And she's doing it by kind of basically draining the life force of people. And then Dr. Lowell and the gangster end up basically kind of um, going after the witch and trying to figure out how to defeat her. But there's there's a quite a bit of uh, investigative stuff in, in between. Steven, did you have a favorite character? Ooh, a favorite character. Um I well, uh, I thought they were all really well developed. I think the um, clearly the the main 
uh, protagonist Lowell. He was an interesting character, although his uh, his his arc sort of uh, wavered. Most of the time, he was the skeptic, but there was one instance in the book where he he suddenly went out of character. He's like, and and suddenly, you know, he's been very practical and pragmatic throughout the entire thing, and he's he's resisting what the evidence is showing him and that people might be being murdered by these dolls. But then at some point something triggers and he's like, and then I have to kill this witch, kill her dead now. <laughs> that was a leap. Um, but yeah. I think all the characters were, even though they might be a little uh, stereotyped in some cases, especially when we got to like the Irish beat officers, I thought they were all <laughs> really um, rich with flavor. Yeah, I did find that Lowell's skepticism was sometimes a little um a little beyond common sense at certain point. Like there 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 were moments where he is actually seeing animated dolls in front of him and he's like, Oh, clearly we're all under a mass uh, hypnosis. Uh <laughs> and it's like, but you just fought the things off. Like it and and he tried to kill a friend of yours and I don't know. Mm-hmm. Hoy, who's your favorite character from, from um, the book? For my part, I will have to say I have two. And um just looking at it again, I, I like Ricori, the gang boss, quite a bit. Yeah, um, he kind of blends that sort of very pragmatic, tough mind, but that with the sort of an old, old world sort of intuitive knowledge of witchcraft and, and the knowledge that there are other powers on the earth. Um, I actually also like uh, Nurse Walters, yes, who is one of the initial um, victims, uh, but she's described as an unusually capable and conscientious young woman, and she, she dies relatively early on in the book but her death will have consequences for the overall resolution of the plot and i think that she's she's a terrific character absolutely and and i feel like the the story moving forward really hinges on a lot of nurse walter stuff because when she's dying she also leaves this cryptic message um she manages to kind of with um uh, by, by by tapping her finger she manages to Express to them. I forget what the numbers are, but she gives them the the the, the numerical value of the letters D I A, and at first, and she does it as she's dying. So she gives them the first big clue they have to kind of go after and find out what's going on. At first, they think the she's spelling out Diane, which is the name of her roommate. But later on, they realize that she's spelling out diary, and they go and they read her diary, and in that diary, they find out the story of uh, Madame Mandelip. And um, and Lachna, her her assistant, mm-hmm. and kind of what they're up to with their doll shop. But then later on, in the end of the story, it's the doll of Nurse Walters who actually kills Madame Manderlip and saves Lowell and Ricori from um, a horrible fate. So really, everything everything hinges on Nurse Walters. And she is the the one that somehow resists the you know how the doll making process usually goes through, mm-hmm. which is not explained. Which is another one of the great like what was it about her that she was able to resist? You know, clearly what's been going on for centuries. Absolutely, and to and to resist it while in doll form because I I would have thought that once you become a doll, you're not even really yourself anymore. But somehow, if that's true, Nurse Walters managed to bring in enough of herself to continue to resist, which I thought was really interesting. Yeah, there was one line which, which was interesting. I was rereading um, to prep for this podcast. They talk about when, when they get to the doll-making process, and um, again, coming back to the unjuin, that releases one of the many lives that lives within a character that has to inhabit the new doll so perhaps that's you know a partial explanation because uh you know depending on which personality gets pulled out of the the person that's going to animate the the new doll maybe that's where nurse walters was able to somehow put a different version of herself into the doll that the witch was not expecting Mm -hmm. so reading something from the 1940s uh what is this 70 years later um Yeah. So almost 80 years later, almost 80 years later. 40s. Yeah. 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 So 70, 80 years later, you know, sometimes I find that you can come across some kind of um, different cultural worldviews and some problematic text. Did you guys find that this was kind of a more problematic, less problematic early Appendix N inclusion? What are your thoughts on that? So I would say, um, so I found it interesting. So, um, the the setting takes place during prohibition which was interesting when they talk about prohibition uh hooch and all that mostly it was with some of the stereotypes um mm-hmm. you know the italian mobsters the drunk irish beat cops and whatnot uh i think the the there was another instance where they talked about that it was commonplace to lock up a woman as a hysterical 
Mm-hmm. And that was that was a you know a, a viable option for um, putting someone in an asylum. So those were kind of the three ones that jumped out of me off the top of my head. Yeah, yeah. My feeling was it's very much of its time, but that it's not in any particular way um, sort of embedded in any particular attitudes. It's a, mm-hmm. it's a pretty modernist story. It's you know it's like watching I don't know like a Humphrey Bogart movie right now. You're going to see some stuff like oh it's clearly the 1940s, but it's not. It doesn't feel like it's reaching back even further, you know, it's, you know, that is, you know, particularly conservative for its time in a sense, right? So it's not looking back to the 1880s or the 19, you know, or, you know, it's, it's a very clean, as I said, modernist story. There's science, there's, you know, it's the, it's the combination of bumping up against science and sort of modern attitudes. Nurse Walters is a career woman and some of the other characters are, you know, have careers and things going on. You know, there are some sort of tropes, stereotypes, again, as the Irish cop. And I think you would have found that in almost any sort of sort of he's sort of the comic relief right you would have found that in a lot of the crime movies of the time and film right. noirs of the time so it's it's not something like we don't have an example for example of you know any kind of very uncle tom type character or anything like that that's that's egregiously offensive it's just you know it's i'm sure if people look at how we do stuff now in 70 80 years that we have some tropes that people think oh that's how they depicted i don't know you know hipsters you know right <laughs> <laughs> so um so i didn't find anything that sort of like you know, jarred me out of the story um, in that sense. Other than, you know, a few sort of slang terms, I feel like this could easily be sort of presented as a modern day story if we want to do a, a modern uh, miniseries adaptation as you were talking about, or, or, you know, or even rewrite it from the ground up with, with literally the same plot. You would just have to change, you know, you know, it wouldn't be a prohibition gangster. It might be, you know, a, an arms, you know, an arms dealer or, you know, a, a drug dealer, you know, Ricori character. And, you know, maybe Nurse Walter's not a nurse anymore. Maybe she's a, a junior doctor or something like that. And sure. that would be, to right. me, only the, you know, it doesn't really need to have much to feel com- completely contemporary in my mind. I agree with that. And I would say that I think uh, looking at this one, it definitely seems like it's got the least potentially offensive material in there. That's for sure. Uh, one of the things that did stick out to me, though, is actually something that we I still see kind of today, but was especially common until like, you know, as recently as the 90s, is kind of this idea of like the gender nonconformist as like a villain. Because, you know, here Madame Mandelip is like this big masculine woman with this uh, hairy upper lip and these in these like big hands. And like, I, I think using this like masculine woman as kind of an, uh, an equivalent to villainy is also kind of the same way that you see um, kind of effeminate men and dandies kind of as the way of um standing for decadence and evil oftentimes in Conan stories but even in like Disney cartoons you know looking at like Aladdin you know you've got and and uh and and kind of Jaf- is Jafar the name of the villain in yeah. Yeah. Uh, the Lion King yeah. no Jafar's you know, Aladdin okay Jafar's Aladdin who's the evil one in the Lion King Scar, I believe. Scar, yeah. He's also kind of got that kind of effeminate uh, side to him as well. Uh, and that's something it's, – it's still kind of a problematic trope that is still kind of used today. But that that definitely kind of stuck out to me a bit. Right. right. I, I don't feel that Madame Mandelip uh, – it's interesting. I think Madame Mandelip is interesting because she never really talks about her motives. You know, it's not really revenge. It's almost just like she's doing this because she can. She's mm-hmm. testing her knowledge. So it's not a – to me, for example, and, and although she's a witch and they say you must burn the witch, it's not really an example of, say, the dark feminine, right? In a yeah. Sense. Oh, I agree with that. Yeah. And actually, at one point, I forget which character it is who's um, who's guessing this, but I um, it's one of the things I highlighted. Before they even knew who was responsible, they were kind of talking about, like, why would somebody do something like this? And on page 33, they say – uh, give one of these people power and opportunity to loose death at random. Death whose cause is um, he is sure cannot be detected. He sits in his obscurity in safety, a god of death, with no special malice against anyone, perhaps. Just shooting uh, d- just shooting his arrows in the air like Longfellow's archer just for the fun of it. So uh, Madame Mandelip is a drone pilot? <laughs> Maybe, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like I'm, I'm, I'm doing this because I can. Right. I agree. I think that was Braille who made that comment about her. Um, and I'm in agreement with Braille. It's like, she's an old soul. Uh, she has this power and she has an arrogance about her that, uh, um, you know, towards the end of the book, she talks about um, 
Lowell and that his his reliance on on science is going to be his undoing because she is working with an unnatural force. And so by people that have gone towards, uh, you know, using science as their explanation for everything, she's by default going to have control over them. And I, I think that whole that's what makes this book very interesting. The the juxtaposition between Lowell as a skeptic, Braille as a man of science who's a little bit more open to um, you know the fantastic, and is you know he's basically the Mulder to Lowell Scully, and then you've got Ricori who's very much faith based, and it's like nope, this is an evil, and this is you know the witch's cord and all that. Mm-hmm. The the play between those three characters, I think, is what is part of the magical mix of this of this novel. I agree. I, I love that moment where Amanda Mandelip says, uh, the ignorance your science has fostered is my shield. That line just really stuck. I, I, I had to write that one down because I thought that was great. Right. And a similar line for Lowell, which I have written down. I don't have too many, but this was his take on it. To admit that what had occurred was witchcraft, sorcery, supernatural, was to surrender to superstition. Nothing can be supernatural. <laughs> if anything exists, it must be exist in the obedience to natural laws. Material bodies must obey material laws. We may not know those laws, but they exist nevertheless. So even though he can't explain what's going on, he's like, nope, things are happening. There's a natural law, and I just don't know what, you know, I don't know what mojo she's doing yet, but it's, it's you know, following some pattern. Absolutely. That rem- that reminds me of uh, when we had read uh, Jack of Shadows. There's this moment where they're talking about the center of the earth, and Jack is talking to this uh, to this angel morning star, and he says, "You know, but I, I I know that the center of the earth is full of fire demons. But those on the other side of the earth, they say it's full of machinery that you know moves the moves the the, the planet in a circle." And the angel's basically like, "Yeah, you're you're both seeing things your own way, and you're both kind of wrong, and you're both kind of right." And I think maybe something similar is here is happening here with you know his take on science and her take on superstition or whatever. It's like. There's probably something to both sides. Right. They That's don't right. have not neither one has the whole puzzle. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And that's the big reveal at the end of the book. I mean, like quite literally at the end of the book is Lowell admitting, yeah, there's something here going on that I don't understand. I have to admit that, you know, there are supernatural elements at work. Mm-hmm. In in a sense, the the character who's the most well integrated is Ricori. Right, because he, right. he has old world knowledge, you know, that's passed on maybe from his grandmothers or whatever. But he's, you know, a modern capitalist, you know, crime boss, yeah. and, and is right. you know that's using right. the tools of modernity, you know, the telephone, you know, the the gap, you know, the Tommy gun and whatever. So he has all the the tools of modernity, but he is, you know, he is in touch with sort of his primal, you know, knowledge. And it makes sense, you know, thinking about the cultural and uh, historical context. It's like this is around the time that like uh, Egyptology is becoming really big. We're using our modern our modern technologies to unearth these like cr- these like really fascinating histories of our own people and things that we didn't even fully know about. And it's like this at this time, there's this sense of like, well, what else are we going to find out about that we're not aware of? Um, I feel like some of that kind of thinking has kind of changed a bit in the past 80 years though, because our, the, the, the level with which we're uncovering new mysteries about ourselves in that sense seems to have kind of plateaued. I think we're getting very granular now and we're not getting these, these big quantum leaps that are understandable by the, the layman mm-hmm. as I think mm-hmm. is what we're, where we're at at the moment. Um, yeah, which is why, like, I think Black Mirror and, and shows like that really resonate with with audiences now, because that's kind of more, I think, kind of along the lines of where we're thinking right now. It's like, what 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 are our new technologies going to do to us as a, as people individually and as a society? That's right. So we can talk about uh, as, as a since you bring this up as technology. So the dolls are technology to Madame Mandelip in a sense, right? Because she's a very much a process and a procedure by which she creates these dolls. Sure. Right. Um, just like wizards and their spells right, in right. D&D. Um, so what's your, what's your take on the dolls as a, uh, as a, uh, I guess a monster really, I guess in, in, um, how do you feel about them? Are they creepy? Are they ludicrous? What do you think? You know? So I think the, um, the dolls, uh, so, so it's kind of interesting, right? So, um, one of the notes I made here is this, this book, Almost certainly, and I, I didn't do too much research on it, but it almost certainly predates all the other magic dolls that I'm aware of, like Talkie Tina from Twilight Zone and <laughs> Anthony Hopkins Magic and Chucky and all those guys. Puppet so, Master. 
Yeah, yeah, and Puppet Master as well. So I think there is precedent that we can easily make dolls creepy. And uh, I, I think the unexplained nature of these dolls is very interesting. So yeah, I think th- I think they work. I think they work as a plot element. They don't they don't speak right. So there, it's usually these these dolls in 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 all the contemporary horror examples I just gave. You know, the dolls themselves are what's creepy. They're they're magically imbued with something. In fact, isn't there a new one like Insidious? Annabelle isn't that a new one as well? Um, Annabelle, right? Annabelle, yeah. By the people who meet, yeah. So it's usually the doll themselves. So in 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 terms of like monster tropes these seem more like henchmen dolls i mean clearly it's mandalip who's the villain and these things are just her uh her spawn that she can go out and do her bidding with so they seem less creepy as like a like a a boss monster and more sort of the the overall uh you know the assassins of mandalip herself Mm -hmm. Sure. And I think this is a good segue into the gaming side of it. And one thing that might be worth mentioning is this is the first novel or book that we've read on this podcast that is not either a specifically cited title or part of a specifically cited series. Uh, And the reason why we chose to read Burn Witch Burn before any of the specifically cited A Merit novels was that the first A Merit novel that is specifically cited is Creep Shadow Creep. And Burn Witch Burn also is a Dr. Lowell story that is prior to Creep Shadow Creep. So we decided we wanted to start with that one before moving right. to Creep Shadow Creep. Right. And um, it's interesting that they Gary Gygax cited that and didn't cite Burn Witch Burn. So I'm, I'm wondering if there's a particular reason he just left it off the top of his head. He just never read it, you yeah, know, who or knows? Um, in my research, I did find out that it was um, out of print for a long time. So mm-hmm. it's, it's mm-hmm. possible that he just never saw that. At the time that he was, you know, it wasn't in front of him, sitting in front of him when he was putting up Appendix N list, you know. Yeah, possibly. Um, you know, it's entirely possible that he read it. But it's interesting that he didn't cite, you know, the more fantastic merit books like, you know, Ship of Ishtar or, mm-hmm. um, you know, any of the other, you know, uh, People of the Pit, you know, those stories like that. But anyway. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, um, but that said, like, let's say, let's say Gary did read this. Is there stuff that you think um, he, that may have been taken from this that inspired D&D? Or if not, do you just think that there are kind of common tropes that you found through this that are in the early iterations of Dungeons and Dragons or are stuff that we are using now? Like the dolls are a great example. Like, have you seen a lot of doll action in your, in your <laughs> fantasy role-playing adventures? I have not seen a lot of doll action, um, <laughs> <laughs> to be honest. I have seen um, – so so golems and constructs are pretty familiar yes. in D&D. And, and there actually uh, is a doll golem in one of the versions of the Monster Manual. I forget which. Oh, really? So well, so if, if that exists, then absolutely. Because that's – you know, if I had to stat this guy up, that's what that thing would become. Because they weren't – they did not seem – intelligent i mean they had some pretty straightforward characteristics you know go kill the guy with the cord and then come back when you hear the flute so yeah (laughs) they didn't have a lot of agency right they're basically automatons other than the will that's imbued by nurse walters into her doll sure yeah i do know one very specific example of this novel inspiring something in the gaming world because one thing i discovered shortly before we recorded this episode was that uh, Edgar Johnson had read Burn Witch Burn and included a um, basically took took kind of combined the two evil women in the doll shop and to one character for his Moon Slaves of the Cannibal Kingdom adventure for Dungeon Crawl Classics and he's got this uh, blind sister named uh, Omalale and she is this like pale white kind of sickly looking woman who lives in this uh, kind of um, desolate place on the island where she's surrounded by her dolls that she crafts and sends out to do her bidding. And uh, so I think that's kind of interesting that he was very specifically inspired by this for that. That's great. Yeah. But then we have witchcraft in here. So guys, witches. Are witches just wizards but female, or are witches NPCs? Are they monsters? What are what are witches in your fantasy gaming? I think witches are great protagonists. Um, I think they are they're they're effectively in in my games they're effectively magic users with sort of nefarious uh, intentions. Um, mm-hmm. Probably selfish, more like uh, wizard mercenaries. Clearly, um, you know, wizards for hire. Uh, and, and, you know, there are certain stereotypes that you can put on them, but 
I, th- I think as a as a means to advance a plot, which is can be uh, can be great to role play. Um, you know, one of my favorite DCC adventures, um, Doom of the Savage Kings. That's got a, a witch character in there that advances a plot a little bit and just adds some mystery. So I think that's a perfect use of of that type of character. So no Glenda the Good Witches in your campaigns? Not really, no. no <laughs> not in mine. There's not a lot of people are all shades of gray in my campaigns. <laughs> I guess the the word association is so strong, you know, despite, you know, what, you know, Wiccan and other, you know, modern pagans are trying to to project that, you know, um, you know, I think of like Haxan, that movie that was made in the twenties or thirties by a Danish filmmaker that William Burroughs narrates on a later version with all sorts of, you know, diabolical imagery. To me, a witch is not just a magic user. It's a magic user, uh, could be male or female because Madame Mandelip learned her trade from a male, a male magic user. I think there's like one brief throwaway sentence in there, but it's someone who learns their trade that is somehow tied towards sort of unearthly powers, non-divine powers. They're not necessarily diabolical, but they're not inhuman powers. Yes. Um, So they're somehow beholden. It's not that they're learning magic by studying sort of, um, you know, physical principles that people just aren't aware of, right? They're not just studying the stars or the ley lines or something like that. They're getting their powers and their knowledge through some other source that is inhuman. Yeah, that, that to me is what a witch is, at least in the practical sense. And if uh, I recall correctly, at no point in the novel does she actually self-identify as a witch. I think they're just calling her a witch. Right, I think so. I think yeah, so, right? I don't. I don't recall that. Actually, to to build on what Hoy's saying, I think like if you think about, um, let's take Harry Potter as an example. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, is Hermione a witch? She clearly knows how to deal with magic, and I think it it comes down to the type of magic you are working with. So animating dolls, you know, which are fed by the souls of people that you had to kill to make them. It's kind of like a forbidden magic. So that seems to be a, a trait that you see a lot in these witch movies of like, um, yes, they do magic, but they're also doing the kind of magic that, you know, decent people should not be practicing. Whereas Hermione is just uh, using light spells and whatnot. Yeah. And certainly in older, in, in older fantasy, especially kind of in the appendix and era, there are a lot of words that are used for magic users that don't necessarily mean it, don't, that don't mean a whole lot other than potentially what their, what their motives are in, in using the magic. You know, you see the wor- words like sorcerer, wizard, warlock, necromancer, necromancer. magician, all these words are kind of bandied about randomly. And it doesn't specifically mean like, oh, I am a a fifth level necromancer with uh, three levels and sorcerer. And that specifically means this thing. Because kind of now with fantasy gaming, like in fifth edition, a warlock very specifically gets their magic from from basically like what DCC would call a patron. Mm -hmm. Um, Sorcerers have like wild magic. Wizards learn magic. But that's not really true in the old school version. It's just like necromancer means you're kind of evil. Um, which means you're kind of evil, but wizard and magician doesn't necessarily mean that. Right. I think part of that obviously is the sort of the nerd tendency to sort of categorize everything very, very specifically. And and also games, it makes sense, right? Games have rules. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, if we want to distinguish between a certain mechanic as in D&D 5th edition, uh, with the different kinds of magicians, um, then it may be useful to just give it a different term. It's not, oh, magic user, wild magic, magic user, you know, uh, you know, uh, divine being, magic user, scholar, right? So I think that that, in, you know, he gives it a more evocative term. It may not be 100% accurate, uh, but then after a while, and we've talked about this before in the podcast, uh, things feed back on themselves. So certain terminology now in the gaming world has fed back on itself. It's not even really referring to the actual external source of the, their term, in a sense. Right. So we're talking about witches and magic here. So kind of on that subject, we can I think it's it, it's pretty easy to go to spells from there. Did you do you guys see any spells that were cast in this novel that you might recognize from gaming? I saw at least 3. I saw um charm spell the the mm-hmm. mandalip cast charm when he was when she was getting one of the girls to come towards her the sleep spell makes an appearance um when uh, lowell goes to visit her and then the paralysis spell also comes into play or at least you know abilities um or whole person maybe you would call it 
That's fantastic because I had two in mind and the two I have in mind weren't any of the ones that you just stated. So that's great because uh, there was also a silent spell mm, because right. yeah, whenever the dolls would sneak into the house, it would, there would be this whole little, little area of silence so that anybody else who might be outside the door couldn't hear what was happening. And also uh, the geese spell because at the very end before nurse Walters murders uh, Madame Mandelip, she tells Ricori and Lowell that uh, that they're going to have to go back to their offices and murder all and murder each other silently, uh, and they're b- about to leave and go do that when Nurse Walters kills her. That's right. That's right. I'd forgotten about that part. And it's certainly sort of in the sort of straight up enchanting sense. Like usually in D anD D, we don't have enough time to sort of like create magic items, at least at sort of lower levels. But creating the dolls and then being able to control your constructs with the I guess the flute. And so those that's you know there's always you know control um, various control spells, control animal, control construct, control this that or the other thing. And so right there, I guess that's like seven or eight spells there. Then right there, so that's, yeah. that's not bad. So it seems like rules is written with Dungeon Crawl Classics or basically kind of any edition of D&D, it seems like you could have Madame Mandelip be an NPC. Oh, absolutely. Do you agree with that statement? Yeah, yeah. I, I absolutely believe. I think, um, I think statting up the doll-making ritual and all the pieces that, that go into that, uh, you know, I know that there are several spells in DCC for how to create magical swords and whatnot. So you could easily create a, um, you know, construct doll spell that required the multiple steps and multiple sacrifices to make that happen. Mm-hmm. Right. I think uh, obviously one problem with sort of tabletop role-playing is that we sort of tend to jump into the adventure unless we're running a campaign and sort of that fun part of being a magician of like the research and, and doing the enchantments is sort of relegated to sort of usually in between sessions. Right. Um, maybe there's games like Ars Magica or maybe some other games that, uh, you know, that I haven't played yet that might have a, a sort of a mode for, enchantment you know just the same way that you have sort of a sort of a domain mode for you know building your castle and putting your armies together that would be a sort of an interesting thing to throw into games you know so that people can work great magics as opposed to sort of the more tactical magic that you see sort of in the a scenario mm-hmm. that's right now one of the fun things i find about reading appendix n is that there are those moments where i'm reading something and i'm like oh that's fun i could use that in my game and I'll share one of those moments with you guys. And then uh, afterwards, let me know if you guys had any of those moments yourself. One of the moments I had is part of this ritual in order to get the people to turn into dolls is the witch needs to injure them and then apply her powerful unguent. Thank you, Stephen. Uh, <laughs> um, but once she's done this, you're then compelled to go off and kind of do this like sp- specific, the, the, the next steps involved in the ritual. But I was thinking about how I was combining two things in my head because I was also thinking about how when we read the second Fafford and Grey Mouser collection, Swords Against Death, there was there, there there was a story where basically somebody who is death or is pretending to be death sends Fafford and Grey Mouser off on this basically geese says like you guys need to go to this this far distant shore and go do this thing for me and they just get up and they go do it and while that might not be very fun in your gaming to just have your dungeon master or judge say like, okay, you guys are now forced to go do this adventure. That's kind of railroady. One thing that I think might be fun is to potentially like put out, put out a situation where you're foreshadowing that this person is dangerous and you should really be avoiding them. But if they, if they interact with them anyways, there might be something that happens, which then causes them to be kind of be geezed and go on this quest for them. I think that might be kind of a fun a fun consequence of dealing with an NPC who you've been warned to avoid. Mm. Right. I've interest, I've interesting thought about interacting with the villain, but I, I'd like to hear what you have to say, Stephen, first. And then, yeah. So I, I think from a game perspective, uh, what, what came from what, what I took from this, which I found very interesting. There was, there was two things that I noted. One again, is that, that witch's cord, um, because it was clearly a part of the ritual where she had to create this thing out of human hair and then she would leave it on a person and that person became a target. So as a game construct, uh, you know, a either having found a token on yourself, realizing it's almost like the, the whole voodoo doll piece, right? So found yeah. that you've been targeted by this creature. And so, you know, more than just, it, it would have to be more, you know, you've been targeted with like, it's effectively a physical curse. So being able to, having to dispose of that would, would, would require a little bit more than just like 
casting it aside. Um, and then another one that I had in the in the book that I liked is it's a throwaway line towards the end of it where she was talking about other, uh, or I think it was like when Lowell and uh, Braille were talking to each other, they talked about, oh yeah, and then there was this uh, lady who used to carry around with her the embalmed hearts of her former lovers. And I just <laughs> thought that was a, a ghastly little visual that I'd like to throw into a game somewhere. I like that. And actually, I'll add on to that. That same woman is the one who used to, who was going around collecting hair and nail clippings and spit and blood. And I think it might be interesting if in your campaign world, you know that these things, if if a powerful witch gets a hold of these things, it can be used against you. It might also be kind of a fun thing to like have your characters protecting their, you know, their nail clippings essentially (laughs) (laughs) or or like loose hairs but like it might be worth meant like as soon as you're leaving the inn you might want to be careful about what you've left behind Mm -hmm. at the inn that's right i mean there's your quest right there it's like oh somebody took a tuft of hair from you and you have to go retrieve it otherwise Mm -hmm. these bad things are going to keep following you yeah well what i like um on this thought about interacting with the villains and quests is uh, rather than have it be just a simple casting and remove curse spell, right? You're having to undercover whatever it is, the steps that you actually have to do to remove this curse that's been laid upon you, yes. right? And, and so then make that a quest and it's a procedural thing rather than, oh, I just cast a spell and, you know, what's the result on the table, right? Um, I also like the idea of sort of foreshadowing or having early interactions with potential antagonists, right? So, but somehow placing a block on the way so that they don't just, you know, people don't automatically go to the swords or go to the spells. Like there's some reason why they can't go after Madame Mandalip or your Madame Mandalip equivalent at the very first moment when they meet, even though they may be suspicious of Madame Mandalip, right? I like this also at the end, as you say, when they're talking about this other witch, so you can foreshadow a villain for another scenario, right? Or or potential antagonist. And maybe that doesn't pay off until three or more, three or four more sessions down the road. But just kind of just drop that little clue there and see if any of the players pick up on it. I like that. Yeah. And another thing that I had thought of just actually just now while you were talking was how in how the villain is defeated by Nurse Walters, the doll. And I think it might be really kind of fun to like, let's say you're playing a game and one of the PCs dies. And if you can find a way later on to make that dead PC do something heroic that saves the party in a dire moment later, I think that could be really satisfying. Yeah, bring them back as a ghost or something. something yeah. yeah. Right, or- if you can find a way that works in the story to have that dead PC save the day, I think that's really fun gaming. Yeah, that's really good. It, um, there are several modules where I think it's Blades Against Death where uh, you can interact with PCs that have done or they become part of the quest. Uh you know, one of the interesting things about DCC is they don't really have a resurrection spell in them. Yeah. Um, so the ability to uh, deal with dead characters or dead PCs makes for really good adventuring. Mm-hmm. I think Daniel Bishop may have mentioned something similar, like just keep the old character sheets. Maybe you can bring them back in an afterlife scenario at some point, right? The various characters, you know, now you're in some netherworld afterlife and, and, you know, either find your way out of it or ascend to a different plane, mm-hmm. you know, with those same characters. So um oh yeah it's a great concept at tpk it doesn't have to be the end of the adventure maybe now all of your characters are in hell right right (laughs) there you go that's how escape from hell (laughs) (laughs) so is there um any particular uh other than uh i think you uh stole the the undoing is there any particular um trope or 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 even just a little detail that you that you would grab for one of your upcoming works there steven you know obviously with their you know transformations that you might want to apply uh well what we didn't talk about a lot in this podcast is one of the things that happened uh is when the nurse goes in there she finds a book and she's reading the book and the book has basically it's it's either a book of scrying or it's it's a visual into another plane and she yes. can see that these elves are powering or watching her and then later on that's referred to the witch refers to as like oh you know who exactly is singing to you those were the elves in the trees um <laughs> but i i think that was something that we didn't mention where it's like this whole the the source of the power it's alluded to i should say that the source of the power has something to do with these otherworldly entities that she can see in the book or maybe they're not even the source of the power but they're definitely it's another source that um the witch has access to the mandalip or potentially she is one of them and none, none of that's really made clear which i really like i like when when mysteries aren't all completely oversolved right 
That's exactly right. Based on my sort of brief knowledge of Merit from the other short stories and knowing how she wears Ship of Ishtar and stuff, like, I, I think Merit actually has a thing for having sort of dimensions might be too strong a word, but other other dimensions, alternate mm-hmm. dimensions, alternate realities that can be peered through from our reality. We can't 100% interact with them, but we become aware of them. Mm-hmm. That's right. And so I, th- I think that's a pretty you know nice trope. You know, you may not go on full-on planescape, right? But it is nice to maybe have in your games – you know, the idea that, you know, you, there's so much more to know, right? Sure. And, you know, with Lovecraft, there's the Necronomicon that drives you mad. And Face in the Frost, the, mm-hmm. the entire villain is based on this person who's obsessed with this one book and mm-hmm. spends all of his time, like, reading this book and becoming transformed by this book. And here we have another book where it's not just like, it's not just that the words are evil and that, like, what what is contained in there is bad. It's like reality actually kind of shifts and changes as you're looking into this tome. And I think that that could be kind of a really fun thing to insert in your gaming as well. It's like if you really want to do additional research on this villain and on the mysteries of this, you have to interact with this object that might potentially drive you mad or pull you into it. So it's like move forward at your own risk. Mm-hmm. Cool. So I think we're in a pretty good place now. Uh, Steven, do you have any kind of last thing that you want to make sure that we uh, touch upon before we wrap up? Not at the top of my head. I want to thank you guys again for letting me be on. Um, it's always a pleasure to listen to you guys. And, and it's been really great uh, being able to discuss books. I haven't been able to do something like this since like the college days when we had a book club. So it's been a lot of fun. <laughs> it's been a pleasure having you on, Stephen. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think um, more sort of moodiness, I think, is good. Sometimes not just the hack and slash, I think. You know, I think old school play rewards sort of investigation, right? before the sort of the, the denouement. And this is essentially that, right? Absolutely. And I, I would just, I guess, I would like to leave you with the words of Ricori from the second to last page from the novel. And he says, to hell with your science. I tell you this, that beyond the curtain of the material at which your vision halts, there are forces and energies that hate us, yet which God in his inscrutable wisdom permits to be. I love that. Anyways, (laughs) so that is A Merit's Burn Witch Burn. Uh, Please stick with us for our upcoming episodes. Episode 21 will be on Margaret St. Clair's The Shadow People. And episode 22 will be on Clark Ashton Smith's Zothique. And we already have great guests lined up for both of those as well. Uh, If you uh, like what you hear, please uh, rate us on iTunes or uh, Apple Podcasts. Uh, It really helps people discover uh, our podcast. Uh, You can email us at appendixnbookclub at gmail.com. Our website has extensive show notes on each episode. That's appendixnbookclub.com. And Stephen, thank you so much for being our guest. Thank you so much, guys. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Okay. See you in the stacks. Read on. The library is closed! <laughs>